0: You're listening to another episode of the Young Investors Podcast, so sit back and relax as myself, Brandon and my buddy Hamish discuss the latest in the world of finance and stock market investing. Now, a quick reminder before we get into the podcast is that nothing in this podcast should be taken on as personal financial advice. If you are ever unsure about your finances or investing and you need some help, make sure you reach out to a qualified financial advisor. But with all that said, let's get into another episode of the Young Investors Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to yet another episode. Uh, Welcome, Hamish. Hamish, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Another uh, relatively uneventful week in Melbourne here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just keeping up with your lockdown.
1: Yeah. Has anything, has it loosened at all or not really? Yeah, they're going down slowly. So I guess we kind of just got to see what happens. But yeah, Mm -hmm. another week in full lockdown, which is... uh, very, very uh, exciting, of course. Is it me. still only an hour that you're allowed out? <laughs> an hour? I don't know if it was ever the case that it was Was it? Was it? Maybe I it is. it was
0: like you're only allowed out of your house for like an hour or something.
1: Oh, okay. You will. You're allowed out once per day. Maybe it oh, is for okay. an hour. I don't know. I'm not sure. But yeah. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> anyway, very limited. How's things at your end?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, things are going well. Same old, same old. Just making lots of YouTube videos. Yeah, you've been- As I do. <laughs> you've been cranking them out three a week at the moment three a week yeah it's um yeah but i enjoy it you know it's what i love doing so good yeah anyway we should get uh, stuck in this we got a special podcast today um me and hamish over the last however long (laughs) many 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 podcasts have been saying how we would like to know more about economics (laughs) 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 because it is it really when it gets down to the nitty-gritty that is uh, one of our weak topics (laughs) so we've brought on one of the biggest brains I know, <laughs> and that is Jason Hughes. Jason, hey, hey. how you going?
2: Not too bad. And you guys? Yeah, going, going well, well.
0: Going well. Thanks for coming on and uh, agreeing to do this and and talk all things uh all things economics with us today. No worries. Um,
2: you, how long have you been studying this for? Um, so I'm just about to finish up my degree right. in finance and economics. Yeah, right. Um, I've sort of focused on banking and risk management through that. Um, mm. So I've got two units to go, um, and right, they're just sort awesome. of ones that I've that I were the boring ones I didn't want to do throughout the, throughout the year. So that, <laughs> mm. like I've I've effectively finished the the meat of the degree, and yeah, it's just right. those those sort of waste of time ones that I've got left. Mm. So about four years or so I've been yeah. formally studying economics. Awesome, and you've been
0: podcasting Fantastic. all through the way now, which you've recently pulled back on because uh, because of your new project. Do You want to tell us about your new project?
2: yeah so the new project is um an email newsletter that I send out twice a week. I, I did have a couple of podcasts going um and they sort of wrapped up uh two or three months ago yeah um like some uh, one of the hosts decided he was gonna go and um do some other stuff, and then mm. um I decided I wanted to try and sort of put my thoughts into writing rather than than talking yep. about them. It's just another another skill, I guess. So yeah. it's called Inbox Condensed. Um, you basically you can find it at inboxcondensed.substack.com. And every Wednesday and Sunday, I send an email um, about sort of usually based around the things that I've been reading. So whether that's articles, those are usually in the Wednesday emails. Yeah, articles I've been reading, things that have been happening, and then on Sunday, I focus it on sort of a bigger topic, whether that be politics or economics or. Something right, okay. happening in finance and sort of write up a little bit of a longer explainer on a yeah. Sunday.
0: I like it. because I think that's... Sorry, Hamish. No, you go. I was just going to say, yeah, I think that's something that, that people need. There's so many different news topics thrown at us. <laughs> so I think a, an idea like Inbox Condensed is actually a pretty smart idea. Yeah, yeah. definitely. So, but and you've only just started that up, right?
2: Yeah, so it's been going for about a month and a half now, I think. Uh, And so, yeah, I've just been writing. I think on Sunday, I I wrote one about the politics of vaccinations Mm. and sort of some of the history of vaccinations and why we have certain vaccinations and not others, um, some of the economic reasons behind that and stuff like that.
0: All right. Cool. Awesome.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm. Um, I'm certainly interested to pick your brain today because I don't know how many times on this podcast that I, we've been discussing some kind of economic um, situation, news story, and I've just been like, "Well, I don't really know what's going on here." So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it'll be um, it'll be interesting to get to the bottom of a couple of those things today. And um, I guess should we just start by going through maybe a bit of a brief overview of of economics and and what's involved?
2: Yeah. Sure. So economics basically is studying how we produce um, and allocate sort of resources. Um, right. Mm-hmm. Is sort of the, the textbook definition that you get. Uh, but it's basically the study of everything that's going on. Um, and it intertwines with politics, it intertwines with basically everything. Every, everything we do <laughs> can be studied from an economic point of view. Um, and so in modern day economics... Um, We tend to split that off into macroeconomics and microeconomics. Um, And Mm. so macroeconomics or deal is what most people think of as economics. They're thinking Mm. about things like the GDP and unemployment and things that the government is going to worry about. So Mm. when you hear people say, uh, this government's terrible economic managers, they're talking about macroeconomics, right? Right. And then microeconomics is sort of, it's a more modern uh, approach to thinking about economics. It looks at things from the bottom up. And so you're looking at an individual person and how they are going to go about making decisions about what okay. they do economically. Um, and so that's where you get sort of things like um, when you go into a shop, what what, what are you going to buy? How much are you going to pay for things? Um, and that's where... Right. A lot of um, modern economics, there's been a lot of modern economists, sorry, have done a lot of work on like, how do you set the price for something? Um, So in Mm. a shop when, um, so obviously, you know, there's the classic, you said something at $2.99 and people think they're paying $2, but they're actually paying three. So those are the sorts of things that come under microeconomics. Right. Okay.
0: So like macroeconomics is more like a top down and micro is more of a bottom up kind of kind yeah. of view of things.
2: So that, that that's sort of the way that things would have been looked at probably about 20 or 30 years ago. Mm. Um, obviously economics is something that's constantly evolving and um, there's yeah. constantly people publishing papers and things. And so in sort of modern, in the last 20 years or 15 years, with the more powerful computers that we have now, we can actually start to combine microeconomics um, and make, Big macro models. So you can like run a simulation oh, okay. with a bunch of individual agents running around doing things and then right, okay. you can explode <laughs> it out into a, a macro economic model. But yeah. Right. There's sort of just different like either looking top down or looking bottom up. Yeah, okay. And so hmm. I think it's a it's quite quite confusing for people to
0: even kind of f- know where to begin looking at economics, whether it be micro or macro, Um, like, I don't know, for someone that wants to start learning a little bit more, what's kind of like a good starting point? What's, what are some good kind of basic principles to kind of get under your belt to start to understand the profession economics a little bit more?
2: Yeah. So, I think the the best way of thinking about economics is inputs and outputs. Okay. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, the way... Basically, everything in economics is you care about some things, say, let's just say unemployment. Hmm. And then the idea, the economist's job, is to determine what things affect unemployment. Right. And so if we want unemployment to go down, what things do we need to do? And so that's probably the best way of approaching it, is taking a topic like unemployment and then having a look into what are the things that are going to change it. Um, and yeah. then sort of coming, that'll work you back into your inputs. So for example, unemployment, things that are going to change that are one sort of government spending um, mm. in the modern day where we've got these sort of high skilled jobs. It, certainly in the developed economies of Australia, the US uh, and Europe, you've got these sort of very, these jobs that require a high level of skill. And so government spending in things like uh, education or um, practical training and those sorts of things are going to affect unemployment because you're going to have more people who are able to do the jobs.
0: Uh, mm, right.
2: And so it's sort of that, that sort of path of saying, what do I care about? Yeah. What do I want? Which way do I want that thing to move? And then how can whoever needs to do the thing how can they affect it? Right. Okay, and okay. usually that's going to come back to the government.
1: Yeah. Unemployment's an interesting one at the moment, right? Because there's a lot of, I mean, in Australia, at least, we've had some government programs, some government spending that's allowed the unemployment rate to not go out of control, as we've seen in in some other places, JobKeeper being, a, I guess, a... Um, one of the levers that the government's been able to use in order to to keep people employed during this process yeah. while businesses are struggling. And we've kind of not seen that do as well, um, I guess, in countries like the US where unemployment is, has risen substantially. So, um, yeah. I guess that's kind of an example of, of what you just described where government spending can have an influence on the, the level of unemployment.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's sort of It's a big debate currently, obviously, in economic circles of these wage subsidies. We have seen them in other places in the world. Hmm. Uh, The UK did a wage subsidy program that was fairly similar. Um, There's a couple of places in Europe that did it as well. Uh, But yeah, so you've seen in that case, you've got a wage subsidy, which is government spending, has Hmm. kept unemployment low. Um, Now, the question is, is that unemployment going to stay low after um, the wage subsidies are removed? Um, Like sort of when we move through the, um, through sort of the the main lockdowns and whatnot, and you remove those wage subsidies, are people suddenly going to get laid off? And there's certainly worries about that happening here in Australia, because the JobKeeper program is only available to part-time and full-time employees. Um, Mm -hmm. It didn't cover casuals. And the problem with that is that while people were getting paid JobKeeper, they were accruing leave. Uh, So annual leave and sick leave. (laughs) And so the problem is, is a lot of people have gone out, they've been getting JobKeeper, um, but they've been able to go and find other jobs. And there's sort of a lot of fear in in economic circles at the moment that once JobKeeper gets removed and people leave, you're going to have these businesses and some of them are just small businesses who have to suddenly make these big payouts of annual leave, and that might right. crush a whole a whole range of businesses. They right. might just go bankrupt. Yeah, and and I complex guess complex in- problems.
1: Yeah and I I guess it's not necessarily the case that once we're out of lockdown businesses are just going to go back to how they were performing previously, people might be less reluctant to to go out and spend as much as they were previously. So even though right now we're kind of in this artificial place where lockdown is restricting people from spending money, it's also not necessarily the case that people immediately go back out afterwards. Um, businesses might find them, I think it's very likely that businesses will find themselves performing substantially worse than they were previously, even after lockdown's finished. Um, and yeah, that's also sure. surely going to have an impact on their ability to employ to employ people that are currently on on um, jobkeeper.
2: Yeah. And, and there's there's obviously the issues of you've got these businesses which they're, they're trying to fix it now, but some people are getting paid like three or four times the amount. Uh, that they would normally earn. Yeah, I'm one of those people actually. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I know a number of people who are in that situation. I I know a number of people who have been able to get double the job keeper. Like from two different jobs, which is not, not supposed to be allowed. <laughs> yeah, wow, that seems that seems whack. <laughs> but it's been very. Uh, yeah, I know there's a number of flaws with the system, but I mm. mean that comes with with any kind but, of quick implementation of anything. So yeah,
0: that's what I was going to say. I, I guess that's a an interesting <clears throat> thing to factor. it. Like this is a you know a complex economic issue, but you can see that there, it's it's imperfect just by the fact that it had to be done very quickly. So you're going to get you know. Uh, you know some some flaws that don't work entirely as as what we would like them to. But I guess that's like what Ray Dalio was saying in, in a recent interview, is that it's just the government governments around the world trying to get large sums of money to their citizens in an imperfect way. So yeah,
2: and you you think about it like if you need to put money into people's bank accounts and you and you sort of set these boundaries of these people are eligible for it, and these people aren't. Mm. You need the infrastructure to do that. And luckily, here in Australia, we have a very good infrastructure um, through things like the um the aTO has yeah. a mm. very robust payroll system a mm. payroll tax system, and so that's that was a very easy way of putting money into people's uh, bank accounts. Whereas in like the US, they just don't have that same sort of infrastructure built, and so it was much more difficult for them. I don't even know if it would be possible for them with their infrastructure to provide like a a payroll subsidy like we've had here. Right, right. It it just, just would, wouldn't be possible to do. Right. And so that's another like sort of side of economics. You can debate the the policies to the nth degree. Mm. But it there's a practical side to it as well, yeah, getting and, it done, yeah, yeah, no, that's very interesting. um all right, well, let's get so we
0: we're talking before about uh economics, and the the easiest way to look at it, I suppose, if you're just kind of getting started, is inputs and outputs. Um, so, when we're looking just, you know, thinking about the macro, thinking about the, the big picture, what are some of the inputs and outputs that we're typically looking at to, to get a better understanding of how maybe our economy, say, here in Australia actually works?
2: So, there's this big three outputs that we talk about, the GDP, okay. unemployment and inflation. So, those are right. sort of the the, the headline uh outputs that we care about key figures yeah Mm. and the reason we care about them is because they tend to be good indicators of a range of other things that uh right that we care about so So it's like an umbrella yeah so like generally if gdp goes up people's standard of living is going to go up um and their healthcare outcomes are going to go up etc etc if inflation is in a reasonable range uh you're not going to sort of have instability um gdp is going to go up uh, gradually over time and then obviously mm. unemployment if that's uh, at a, a low enough level it's going to drive gdp uh, the way mm. we want it to go inflation's going to be in about the right range and of course people are going to have jobs um, and when you're talking about the macro obviously you By definition, you can't talk about each individual person. And Mm. so that's why you sort of care about these three things because they're generally going to keep each person uh, in a a pretty good state if they're in the right place. Right. It's probably, yeah, it's the best way to get the broad picture, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. I suppose it's the same way you talk about in... um, When you when you're talking about stocks, you're gonna look at sort of like a debt to um, equity ratio or a PE ratio or like things like that. Like they're not the whole story, but they give you a pretty good indication. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, so those are the three primary outputs, right? Um could we maybe talk about what are the two what what are the inputs um in, in that equation?
2: So there's sort of two main ways of affecting the economy there's fiscal policy and there's monetary policy um and the way i like to think about it is fiscal policy is the remit of governments so governments take care of fiscal policy and monetary policy is the remit of the central bank um okay and uh, there's a fuzzy line between Mm. what the central bank is and what the government is and it's a very important Mm. Uh, because they're concept. intertwined, aren't they? And they're very intertwined um, and it's it, it's a very sort of important concept of like the thing what we call the independence of a central bank. So yes. the idea is that they're set up by the government. In some places they are owned by the government. Here in Australia they are largely owned by the government. Okay. Um, but generally what you want is you want no direct control over monetary policy by the government. Yeah. Mm. Um, but it's a, difficult, uh, it's a difficult sort of balance to draw. Mm. But sort of coming back to fiscal policy, when we think about it, we're thinking about um, government spending. So anywhere you see government is uh, committing this much to build this infrastructure or mm. to um, build out their defense force or yeah, like um, roads and infra- yeah, infrastructure, healthcare, that sort of stuff. All of those things. That's government spending. Right. Um, and then tax policies as well. And right. so, you can sort of, it's this sort of give and take between spending more um, yeah. to inject money into the economy or you can tax less so you don't take as much money out of the economy. Right. Okay. And so what we see here in Australia, we see low and middle income tax offsets. So yes. if you're earning below, I think like $37,000 or so, you're mm. getting about $600 a year from the government just free and clear.
0: Mm. Right. Uh, and Australia is also, I think, one of the few countries that has a tax-free threshold as well. Yeah. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. Um, I'm yeah. not sure about what other countries have. I'd No, I'm pretty sure that the US in large parts of the country don't have a tax-free threshold. Mm. Um, They get taxed on a state and federal level though. So it would be a bit Hmm. difficult to go and like check all of that. Mm. Um, But yeah, we've got the Mm tax-free threshold as well. So if you're earning below $18,200, you just, you don't get taxed. It's a pretty good rule. Yeah, it is (laughs) is a good rule. Um, and handy it is. Handy for the like, low income earners. Yeah. It's, it's handy for the low income earners. And it's also less of a stress on the tax system because if you're taxing 20%, mm. sort of below $18,200, that, that really doesn't matter. Like how many people yeah. Yeah. in the economy are earning below $18,200? It's a small amount of money to be chasing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then yeah, like I you've got you. to worry about like some 14 year old who's working one shift a week at (laughs) their local Woolworths, like you don't need to worry about them doing their tax return. Yeah, right. Because
1: the the top tax bracket, I would presume pay in in terms of dollar amounts contributes them a substantial majority of the overall tax revenue generated so um if it's a trade-off between having a a tax-free threshold for the very low earners or increasing that top bracket by a couple of percent i'm sure that's a pretty easy decision to 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 make
2: (laughs) Mm. yeah and it just means that because remember the the tax system has to be administered by the ATO and so the yep. ATO need to employ people and they need systems that are going to track people and see where tax evasion is happening and you'd rather mm. catch that at the top than at the bottom. Yeah,
0: mm. yeah, definitely, yeah. And it's probably a safer policy from a government too because I imagine there would be more voters in the bottom, you know, tax bracket than what there would be people in the
2: top tax bracket. Yeah. True. Yeah. And then the other, p- the other part of that is we've got a very good so, uh, sort of social security system here where yeah. if you don't have a job or you're a low income earner, you can get uh, money from the government. And yeah. most of those people are going to fall underneath that tax bracket because um, that yeah. money is actually taxable. So if you're earning oh, above right. $18,200 yeah, $18, and you are getting money from Centrelink, you'll actually be taxed on that money. Right. And yeah. so most of those people are going to be below eighteen thousand two hundred dollars, which means that makes sense. Like those are the people who aren't going to have money left over at the end of the year to pay tax.
1: Mm. Right. Mm. Okay.
0: Right. So so we've got this. So fiscal policy is is stuff that's done by the government. Yeah. So it's it's. Them, first of all, collecting money through taxes and then the policy on how they spend the money, whether it be on infrastructure, healthcare or roads or, you know, defense or whatever.
2: Yeah. And,
0: and then so there's they that- can...
2: I'll just jump in there. So yeah, yeah, go, go. If yeah. They collect taxes and they spend the money. They can hmm. spend more money than they collect. Um, yes. And to okay. do that, they need to borrow. Okay. Um, and Where does so, that money come from? So, that money comes from the market, basically. Um, okay. So uh, here in Australia, we have the Australian Office of Financial Management. So if the government needs to borrow money, um, generally, the it's going to be the Office of uh, or the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. They're mm-hmm. going to go to AOFM and say, look, we need to, here's our policies. We need to borrow $13 billion. And right. the AOFM is going to basically just issue bonds and they're going to, through generally a bank. So um I think Westpac, I'm not 100% sure, I think Westpac do their banking. Um mm-hmm. are going to just offer those bonds to the open market and there'll be an auction and people can put in their bids for it and then right. they'll divvy it up just like basically like an IPO. Right, right. okay. Okay.
0: Yeah, once so that, and that's what that's what happens when people are buying bonds. Yeah. Right.
2: So this year, we've had a, a series of auctions. They've all been very, very oversubscribed, which is a good okay. thing because people want Australian government debt. I think Australian government debt is one of the highest rated in the world. It's higher rated wow. than okay. uh, the US government. Oh, wow. Um, wow. And so so I, I think the, the US government has double A rating. We've got triple A, or it might be we've got double okay. A and they've got A. Um, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're higher yeah. rates than the US government um, people want our bonds, and so if the government needs to borrow money, they can yeah just sell bonds in the open market. Just like if uh, CBA wanted to borrow money, they could sell bonds in the open market.
0: Mm. Right. So if if you're so if you're buying government bonds, you are buying into the debt of the government. So that money is being given to the government for them to be able to spend it on whatever they need to do.
2: Yeah. So yeah, right. if you're, you're basically lending your money to the government. And, and then they're like promising any, to pay they'll, you back. They'll pay it back over time. Yeah, so they'll pay it back over time with interest. interest? And obviously mm. bonds are slightly differently um, sort of structured to a, yeah. a mortgage or something where you yep. only pay the interest down over time and then you pay the principal right at the end. But yeah, they're paying it back mm. to you over time. Right, okay. Right. And if the government...
1: This is a question I've always wondered... If the government is doing a ton of spending like they're doing now and presumably taking on a lot of debt, issuing a lot of bonds, does that have an impact on the interest rates on those bonds? Do do the interest rate on those bonds go up when there's a huge supply of them being pushed into the market?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So if there's um, low supply um, and um, also if there's very high supply and very low demand, Hmm. um, the price of that bond is going to come down. And therefore, right. the interest rate is going to go up. Um, and so, w- luckily here we haven't really hit that point. Um, and in a lot of countries, you we don't really know where that point is, where suddenly the interest rates are going to go up. Um, but as long as there is sufficient demand, like we have here, yeah, th- th- it's not going it's not going to happen um, because mm. it it's totally a supply and demand thing. Right. Okay. And, and, so, and so the way that works, sorry, um, is when the AOFM makes a bond, they'll say, okay, here's a 10 year bond with um, semi annual coupons. So mm-hmm. paying interest every six months. Um, mm-hmm. And we'll pay that at 2.5%. And then they'll go to the market and say, here's the bond, semi annual coupons, 2.5% for 10 years. And the market will say, we want three percent, so we're just going to pay less for that bond. Mm-hmm. So we're going to mm-hmm. be we're going to pay below the par value, basically.
0: Right. When it comes to governments, we're talking about how Australia's bonds are quite highly rated. Yeah. So if 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 the ratings um, slip down, does that mean people are less interested in buying that debt?
2: So the ratings are done by. Uh, like private companies. So oh, there's, okay. there's um, some big private companies around the world. So Fitch, um, Standard & Poor's, or S&P, yeah. and uh, Moody's. yeah. So they are the three big ratings agencies and they will do ratings of bonds. Um, and right. so they'll have their model that they basically every uh, quarter or month or whatever um, it is, they will just sort of put, Recent data, and it'll include like a range of things like GDP and unemployment and mm. um, the budget surplus and a range of uh, data, and they'll plug all of that into mm. their model, and then they'll get a rating out of it. So,
0: what does the rating actually tell us? Is it how likely that government is going to be able to,
2: you know, repay its bond or something? Basically, yeah, it's ba- it's like a, a person's credit rating.
0: Right, okay, um, yeah. and so, so you're saying this is this is a safe bond, if it's say a triple A yeah like okay this this is safe,
2: yeah, so right, if it's triple a um all the way down to I think b, yeah. that's what you call investment grade, okay, um and so investment grade bonds are um it's it's more of a legal definition for something like a pension fund or a superannuation fund, because okay. they'll yeah. only be allowed to buy investment grade yeah. bonds um, yeah. and so you've got that and then below B you're going to C which is what you call a junk bond um, yeah. and or a, a high yield bond is sort of a more politically correct <laughs> way, yeah, yeah, way yeah. of saying it um, and so generally it's going to mean obviously they are yielding higher so um, you'll get a better interest rate but there's more risk attached to it and mm. then once a bond goes into default it gets a D rating.
1: Right. right. Okay.
0: So, are there are there some countries because I imagine there are some countries out there that their bonds would not be particularly highly rated. Does that mean there are some countries out there that really struggle to get investors to buy the government's debt and struggle to raise money and struggle to spend on you know the things we were talking about before?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, right. Okay. So, like a recent example is Argentina actually defaulted on their debt. Um, wow! Earlier this year, actually, uh, so they de- like defaulted and their their bonds are, are useless. And so I think their um, Argentinian bonds are yielding about forty percent or something. <laughs> forty, yeah, at the moment. Holy smokes! Um, yeah, so they are. So that's saying like, like if if they
0: don't default on those bonds, then the Argentinian government's going to give you forty percent.
2: Yeah, basically. Wow. So they basically what they did is they, they restructured their debt. Um, and so right, okay, effectively yep. things like the IMF came in and the, the World Bank and they sort of mm. restructured it all. It's very complicated and like a highly <laughs> um, highly political thing. But basically, right. yeah, uh, if they were to pay, if you were to buy a bond now, an Argentinian bond, I just had a look here, um, There, I think this is a 10-year bond is currently mm. yielding fifty one point five eight percent. Right. Wow. Um so if you were to buy one of those bonds now and hold it until it matures, um and then um and they don't default, you'll get fifty one point five eight percent yield. Yeah. Um, but and so like yeah, sort sorry. of importantly that's in um pesos. So yeah. the the um peso is going to change very significantly against the the US dollar or the Australian dollar. Yeah, that's oh, that's what okay. I was just
1: about to say. How does uh, inflation must play a role in that, right? Because the Absolutely. the fifty percent ish interest rate is probably a, a nominal interest rate, I presume. Um, yeah. And then once you take into account inflation, what the actual interest rate that you earn over that ten year period may be very different, right? I mean, if I guess if a, mm. if a bond was uh, had a two percent coupon attached to it, or a two percent interest rate is what you're going to get over the next ten years, but the inter- but the inflation rate is three percent in real terms, you've you've actually seen a negative 1% return. Is, have I got that correct?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's right. not exactly not, that, but that's a yeah. very good approximation <laughs> um, just because of like compounding effects. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So just just quickly, I googled 2018 inflation in Argentina was 34% right. and 2019 was 53%. So yeah, you're, mm. like you're basically getting zero on that. <laughs> right, I see. Um, I see. So 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 overall you have these
0: in the case of Argentina this high interest kind of bond is that they have to offer that high interest because otherwise no one would be interested and um, that and that's or that's that's the that's the natural interest because of the supply demand equation
2: yeah so that's going to be set by the supply and demand equation um yeah. and so you it, it's it's sort of like tricky when when you're offering bonds they need yeah. to be offered at a reasonable approximation of what the go- of what the market is going to want so you have to sort of estimate how much the market wants uh, yeah. like is willing to buy and then like what terms they're going to want um, but then once it's in the market and they've uh, like they're just trading on the open market then it's 100% just dictated by supply and demand. Right. And that's so where yeah. modern central banks can adjust interest rates just by buying and selling government bonds.
0: Right. That's a good segue. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's the next <laughs> thing we've got to talk about, right? So, we spoke about fiscal policy. That's what the government's doing, what their you know, tax revenue they're collecting, what they're spending it on. And then we've got this other um, input, which is the monetary policy. Yep. Yeah. Right. So, tell us about what is monetary policy. What is a central bank? Um, how does that all relate into this picture that we're we're
2: starting to kind of construct? So, monetary policy is what what it says on the tin. Really, it's the the policies set around the the money in the economy. Okay. Um, how much money is in the economy? Basically, and that sort of thing. yeah. How much money is in the economy? how much that money costs and interest rate is a cost for money over time. Yes. Um, it's, yeah, so it's r- related to that. And then sort of the part that people don't uh, pay attention to a whole lot or it's sort of a little bit more hidden is how do you move money around the economy? Um, and that's a very important role that the central bank plays. Um, okay. And so like effectively the payment system within the economy Mm. Um, and the stronger that payment system is, the more effective monetary policy is going to be. Mm. So I don't know if you've ever like looked at, for example, in the US Fed, when they set an inflate, uh, not an inflation target, when they set their cash rate target or mm. their interest rate, they set yep. a range of zero point two five percent. Whereas yep. here in Australia, we just set one uh, interest rate. A number, mm. yeah. yeah. So that's got to do with the fact that Australia's uh, payment system is a lot more robust than the payment system in the U.S. Um, and so when the Reserve Bank of Australia sets an interest rate, a target, they can actually hit that target. Um, yeah. I think since they started targeting the interest rate, because they they haven't always done it, I think they started targeting the interest rate around the beginning of the 2000s. There hasn't been a single day where they haven't hit the interest rate. <laughs> oh, there <wow>. you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and And so, but in the US, they just can't do that.
1: Yeah, can can you explain that a little bit more? Maybe the difference in the payment system. What you mean by that in terms of the difference between the US and Australia?
2: Yeah, no worries. So in Australia, if you want to be a bank, um, you have to, or if you you want to, it's not not ne- necessarily a bank. If you want to be an authorised deposit taking institution, mm. okay. <laughs> um, so you want Technical. to you want to take people's money and hold it for them um, you have to be registered with APRA, um, yep. you have to get a license from them to do that. And then hmm. you have to be a part of, um, so the payments, uh, infrastructure with the, with the reserve bank of Australia. So you have to okay. hold a bank account with them effectively. Oh, okay. Um, and that bank account in there, you have your exchange settlement funds, um, and effectively, what happens is at the end of the day, like you'll notice, obviously, payments if you pay from CBA to Westpac, they it'll only arrive the next day. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is at the end of the day, all the payments that get made, like are all put in a list and they are sent to the central bank, so to the RBA, and mm-hmm. the RBA will just adjust the account balances in CBA's accounts and Westpac's oh, accounts see. just yeah, on a net right. basis. Um, and the way this used to happen was, if CBA was sending money to Westpac, they would just basically send um, like a, some sort of message to Westpac.
0: Mm,
2: um, right. Usually, like the, the, over time, there was different technology that this was done using. But yeah. They would just send one, mm. and CBA would hold an account at Westpac, and Westpac would just adjust that account. And then once a week or once a month, someone would literally take cash or gold from the vault at CBA and mm. they would carry it over to Westpac and say, wow. here's what we owe you. <laughs> there you go. Um, and so now
0: this is all done
2: through now the Reserve Bank. Yeah. So it's all done completely through the Reserve Bank now. It all makes sense. Um, and the reason why that's important is because imagine if a bunch of uh, CBA customers want to send money to a bunch of Westpac customers, CBA doesn't have all the money like that they have in like, their customer accounts because they're lending yeah. it out, um, CBA would fail. And then a bunch yeah. of people would ha- like, have their money wiped out. Right. And so this happens on a daily basis. Um, and then the way, if they do run short of money in their account, they are then allowed to borrow. And they can say, look, we've, we're supposed to pay you $10 million today. We don't have the money. But like, because the money sort of flowing to you, likely you're going to have to pay us a net amount tomorrow. Mm, So we'll just say you pay us back tomorrow minus a little bit of interest. Right, okay. And that happens within those RBA accounts. And Mm. the way the RBA does this is they say, um, you're allowed to just make those deals. um, But any money you hold at the RBA earns interest at 0.25% below the published cash rate. If you can't find anyone to borrow the money from to settle your payments, the RBA will lend you money at 0.25% above the cash rate. And so nobody's going to ever lend below 0.25% below the cash rate because Mm. they can just put their money in the RBA and earn more. And nobody's yeah. ever going to borrow any higher than 25 basis points above the cash rate. Hmm. and then all the RBA has to do is sort of buy and sell bonds so that the amount of money in those exchange settlements accounts means that the average uh, um, the average rate that money is lent in the overnight market is at the cash rate.
0: right right okay. So, oh, we're
2: getting, we're getting high level, aren't we? <laughs> so, so, effectively, that's how they do that. Um, and getting back to your question, Hamish, and what happens in the US is they mm. run a fairly similar system, but there isn't that rule that everybody has to be a part of the Federal Reserve System. Oh, okay. And right, so, okay. they don't have the same amount of control Got over it. Mm. how much people are borrowing um, and like w- where the cash rate is. They, they just can't... Because not everyone's a, a member of the system, they can't control oh, it as okay. closely. Interesting. There you go. Wow. wow. Okay. So going back. So
0: so the central bank is the is is really the head honcho, I suppose, of this whole system, yeah. and kind of can and and kind of has. It's kind of observing everything and just making sure that it's, you know, it's controlling everything, making sure everything works. It's controlling the amount of money or credit. um, And, you know, all of the banks actually work through the central bank. Well, at least that's what we've we've got in Australia. Yeah. Right.
2: Yeah. So, the central bank really isn't um, (sighs) legally, it's just a bank. Like, it's just a bank. And in fact, the central bank until sort of the 1950s was um, CBA. Okay, there Um, you go. Didn't know that. So, like, they're just a bank. Um, Now they get set up by a a federal charter. um, And so they're sort of carrying out government policy in a way, but they're just a bank. Um, In the U.S., the U.S. Federal Reserve System, is Mm. a series of I always forget it's either seven or nine banks yeah um there is just a series of banks around the country and Mm. then they have a board that's right um who sits in Washington and who sets policies um Mm. and yeah so they're just that sort of the way it was sort of um, develops in the economic school of thought is through a, a guy back in the 1860s, I think, a guy called Walter mm. Um He was actually, yeah. a, he was an a- editor of The Economist magazine, and he wrote this book called Lombard Street, in which he sort of laid out a model of a central bank where the central bank is just a lender of last resort, in the banking system, so okay. if a bank mm. runs out of money, central bank's there to lend it to them, and mm. because banking is inherently unstable, and throughout history banks have always failed. Yeah. It's just it's just it's a really good system for running an economy, but it's also a really bad system because they fail. Mm. Um, and yeah. so. Can, I'll chuck in a question. So mm-hmm. can a central bank fail? Technically, yes. Um, we've never really been in the situation where a central bank has has failed. Um, How would that happen? So the way it would basically work. So if you think about a central bank's balance sheet, are they going to mm. have assets, which is like government bonds, um, gold, Maybe some foreign currency. Um, yeah. they're gonna have that on their asset side and then on their liabilities side, they're gonna have those um, exchange settlement balances. So the yeah. like the money that banks hold there. What we were just talking about. Yeah. Hmm. Um, hmm. and there's gonna be currency, because they they're liable for, for the, the physical money that's going around in the economy. Hmm. Um though if those liabilities get really, really big and people mm. suddenly lose faith in like really the, if the banks lose faith in the money that is in the economy mm. um, or that they, they're they holding at the reserve bank, the bank could fail in, in that case because people are just going to say, wow. look, we want to take our money out. We want to we want to go and get some gold with it, or we want to. Yeah. Um, and if people, basically people would have to say, we're just not going to transact with this currency anymore. Yeah. We just don't have faith in it anymore. So it would be, a, a, a to, for a central
0: bank to fail, it would be everybody bailing on that currency and just getting out and saying, no, nah, we, are, we are leaving.
2: Yeah. Um, and they're all a, doing a very this together. A kind specific of way that they would do it. Um, again, right. we've never really seen it happen. Yeah, you're more likely. Sounds like to we don't see, want to see it happen. No, it would be, <laughs> it, it would be very, very bad. Um, yeah. In, in a big country, obviously, like for example, Argentina, people <clears> lost <throat> faith in the peso, um, lost faith yeah. in the government. Um, and that would probably happen before the central bank failed. People would okay. lose faith in the government first. Um, yeah. But like if the, say, Federal Reserve was going to fail, mm. you. You would hope the U.S. government would like bail them out because if the if the U.S. Fed failed, um, like there's just an ungodly amount of money that's transacted through the U.S. Fed, U.S. dollar, like the entire world economy would be sent back like three hundred (laughs) years. Like it, it would be, it would be like doomsday.
0: Yeah. All right, uh, well let's 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 leave that there. Let's not make that happen. Yeah. <laughs> let's everybody stay calm. Keep spending. And let's let's make sure that doesn't happen. All right. So let's go back. Um, so the central bank also, you know, when you read about what they do when you watch YouTube videos or whatever, you listen to Ray Dalio, they always say that the central bank controls interest rates and they are allowed to print money. Yeah. That's like what, what the you know, that's probably the, the big big key points that you hear from explainer YouTube videos. Yeah. But I wanted to talk about so so how does how does the central bank actually go about controlling interest rates? Because they can if by influencing the interest rate, if they lower it, they can stimulate the economy, they can make it cheaper for people people businesses whatever to borrow money and spend it so it keeps the kind of it keeps the economy stimulated so how does the central bank actually play the role of adjusting that interest rate and stimulating the economy
2: so they they control the amount of money that's in the economy to put it simply yes. so i'll just give yes. you an example say the rba wants to uh, lower the interest rate Yep. Right. So how do you lower the interest rate? You buy government bonds. And when they say the interest rate, they generally mean on the government bonds. So mm, you're going to yeah. buy the government bonds, which means mm-hmm. supply is lower compared to the demand. So the price is going to go up and the interest rate is going to go down.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. So, because okay. they're, they're buying, so they're taking those bonds away.
2: Yeah, basically. Yeah. Okay. So what they do is say like they want to buy a certain amount of bonds they'll go at I think it's 11 o'clock on whatever day they'll say we want to buy these bonds Um, then everyone sort of who holds exchange settlement accounts so the banks and the superannuation funds and whatnot say yeah we'll sell those bonds to you at that price that you're Ah, asking
0: Um,
2: that auction takes place they sort of do that and then what they do is they just say well we've say with CBA we've just bought 10 million dollars worth of bonds from you we'll just put 10 million dollars in your account we'll just add 10 million dollars onto uh, cba's uh, uh, account balance like that's what, so just the what cent- they do so the central bank is actually
0: buying the government bonds off of the banks and that then essentially clears the bonds off the table but also gives the banks money yeah that's wow. how it works
2: yeah okay so there
0: you go
2: and it's, it's not that different to really um, how a bank, like cause a- any bank can create money. Mm. Um, CBA creates money. Every time they lend money, they're creating money out of thin air. Mm. It's just, just in the form of credit. Yeah. They're just saying, yeah, like we'll, we'll lend this money to you. Yeah. And it's an IOU. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then you sort of, L- the, the constraint on a uh, normal bank is that they've got to hold capital against that all their operations, so they've actually got right. to have some physical currency. The difference, to back it yeah. Up. yeah. <laughs> the difference with the central bank is they can make the currency, um, and so that's sort of a, an important distinction to make: the difference between money and currency.
1: Mm.
2: Um, money or currency, sorry, is a form of money. But yes. um, if you look at sort of how much money is in the economy, you're going mm. to see it listed as currency, bank deposits, and then like something called broad money, which is a little bit sort of fuzzy what that is. Okay, um, But yeah, so currency is just a form of money and the central bank is the only sort of body in the economy who's allowed to make currency.
0: Okay. Right. So, th- So currency is like... Australian dollars whereas money actually refers to what I've got in my wallet
2: um no is that right no, no? so what you've got in your wallet is currency money oh okay money I the wrong like, way so your money is what yeah. you've got in your wallet so like your $20 notes and yeah. like your your collection of coins yeah. plus what you've got in your bank account that's your money but oh, okay. like part yeah. of that is currency and part of that is your bank deposit
0: ah uh, okay
2: right Right.
0: So, okay. Wow. Yeah. Learning a lot today. This is great. I, I, I could talk about this for hours. <laughs> I love learning about this stuff. Right. So, so the central bank is, is essentially buying – so, to control the interest rate, they're buying the bonds off of the – they're buying the government bonds off of the other banks – and then that gives, so that gives the banks money and then the money can, you know, go into the economy, be lent and spent and that sort of stuff. Yes. That's, that's kind of the, that's the broad picture of it. Yeah. Okay. And then, so explain again, how, so how does that relate to, so the, the, how does that then relate to the central bank just adding zeros, just printing money?
2: So how does that work with, the, with the balance sheet and all, all of that? So basically what happens is we'll use the example of the RBA and CBA. Yeah. They go to buy 10 million dollars worth of government bonds mm. off of CBA. So on the RBA's balance sheet, they say okay, 10 million dollars of government bonds is on the asset side. Yeah. And we'll just add 10 million dollars worth of liabilities uh in like CBA's column on the liability side. Mm. Like that's literally it.
0: That's that's the printing of money because they're not actually yeah, they're just they can just buy it.
2: Yeah. But the important thing to remember is that in the economy, all you've done is switched out one asset for another. Yeah. Um so you sort of switch out one less liquid asset, you could say, yeah. For mm. another one. Um mm. you've advanced a sort of a, a bunch of interest and whatnot, but you're not just going and to the banks and saying, Here's some money. Mm. Um they they are actually like switching that out. And so in general, a government bond is considered to be a very safe asset for a bank to hold. Um, Mm. It's right Mm. up there with the highest classes of assets. Um, The only thing higher is money. And so, um, yeah, they're they're just switching that out so they have more actual money to spend. And what that does is it lowers the interest rate because when they're settling... uh, payments at the end of the day, they don't have to borrow as much.
0: Yeah. Right. So, when people say this this whole concept of printing money, it's actually just, you know, they're really just referencing this process that's happening.
2: Yeah. Yeah. They're, right. they're just, it's this process of buying money and just because of the way the central bank works, they don't have to have that money already to buy a bond. If they want to mm. buy something, they just make the money. Basically, yeah, yeah, exactly,
0: yeah. They just add zeros in 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 there. Yeah, you know, you know, they just press their keyboard zero zero zero. Basically, yeah, <laughs> exactly, yeah, okay. Wow. Um, so I wanted to talk... So it's a, it's a fine line. So they've got to try and be, I guess, kind of independent. Although they're kind of working with the government, the central bank's trying to be independent. They're trying to control the currency. They're trying to control the amount of money and credit in the economy. You know, as best they can. What what happens if you know, they start going a little bit berserk. So what happens if they just like, all right, like what we've been seeing, I suppose, over in the United States where people are looking at the Fed's balance sheet and that they're buying, you know, literally, you know, trillions of dollars of of these bonds. And what what happens if this starts to get out of control and, you know, the central bank starts to get a bit too trigger happy and they just keep buying Mm. and buying and buying?
2: Well, at some point, if... The banks just think, "Hang on, this is crazy. I don't actually need any more money. Like, I'm quite yeah. happy with how much we've got. Like, this is fine." They'll just say, "I'm not going to sell the bonds I have." Sorry. And okay, <laughs> so so there is that sort of hard limit of what the, the central bank can do. Uh, right. Like, if the if nobody wants to sell their bonds, the central bank can't add money into the system. Right. Right. So
0: although we say technically, you know, oh, the central bank can just print as much money as it wants. I mean, technically, yes, it can do that maybe by the rules, but in reality, that's not true.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think you could probably, they could probably find a justification for just saying, well, you don't want to buy the money. We're just going to, you don't want to sell us the bonds. We're just going to give you the money anyway. They could probably figure out some justification for doing that, but that would be, like we've we've never been in a situation where people have well, stopped okay. taking money, so we don't know that. Yeah. Hmm. Um and then the other part of it is like, for example, earlier this year everyone went into a bit of a flurry um when the Fed said they were going to do unlimited QE, which is just QE is just the buying of assets in the market. Okay. As if they were going to do unlimited QE. Um basically what they were what generally or historically, QE has done, as they said, we're going to do $600 billion or $1 trillion or whatever. Yeah. Mm. Um, and then they do that and they stop. And then they see mm. what happens. In this, this, case, time different. this case, yeah, we've, they've just said, look, we're, we're not going to put a limit on it. We're just going to do it until we see that our goals have been fulfilled. Um, everyone suddenly thought that they were going to put unlimited money into the economy. Which wasn't true. Mm. They put a certain amount into the economy. You can go and see how much money they put into the economy.
0: Yeah, um, yeah.
2: Like they didn't actually put unlimited money. And it's kind of based on this principle that they learned during the GFC, where they were putting sort of numbers on it.
0: Mm, how much they're gonna put in. Yeah. yeah.
2: Mm. Um and then it turned out to not be enough. And then they had to come out again and say, Okay, well, now we're gonna do another round. And that just erodes the credibility of what the central bank is doing. Like it starts to look like the central bank doesn't have control of what's going on. Mm. Um, they look, yeah, they look out of control, and that causes more panic, which makes the situation worse, which means they need to do more. Right. And so back in the GFC, this is sort of a, the fiscal side of the GFC. Is the a guy Hank Paulson? He was the secretary of the treasury. Um mm-hmm. Under Bush during the GFC. Um, and he was asking Congress for $700 billion. And they were like, You're, you're mad. Like, we're not giving you $700 billion. Like, he, he was asking for a blank check of $700 mm. billion dollars to go and do what he wanted to save the financial system. And yeah. they were like, No, you're, you're dumb. We're not going to, like, why do you need so much money? And mm. his, his, in Congress, he was testifying and he said, If you show up to a gunfight, and you've got a bazooka in your pocket. You may not have to take it out and use it if the other person knows you've got a bazooka. Yeah, that's <laughs> smart. Yeah. Um, so you made he made he was saying, look, we might not have to use the seven hundred billion dollars. We don't want to have to use the seven hundred billion dollars. But mm. if the market knows we have it and we have the ability to backstop all this panic. They might yep. just stop panicking and say, oh, it's fine. Like the, the government's got us. We're, I think we're going to yeah, be fine. 700 billion. Right. Wow. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of like, and that 700 billion, they did end up using it and they actually made money off it because they went and bought a bunch of bonds. They injected equity into some, some companies with like interest that had to be paid and they actually mm. made money on, on oh, that. There you go. Um, so, but yeah, it, it's this when central banks, what they've learned now, is that if they put out big numbers that they think are going to backstop the economy, they may not have Mm. to use it because people just stop panicking just because they said they're willing to do it. Right. And I guess Mm.
1: that's, is that kind of what we're seeing at the moment with the stock market? How as soon as that kind of sentiment was coming out that there's going to be unlimited or i guess there's no end to the quantitative easing the stock market has just been on an absolute tear it's kind of in a case where a lot of people don't want to bet against the the federal the amount of money that the federal reserve is spending on on financial assets is that is that uh, accurate yeah. or not
2: yeah look i, I don't think we're going to know 100% until we do a retrospective what's happened here Um, like we're still in the middle of it. Um, I think that there was a a fairly significant worry that there was going to be a financial crisis, Mm. um, similar to what we saw in 2008, um, which never ended up happening. And I think that the, the panic there was that people's, um, people are going to start defaulting on their mortgages and on their car loans and on, student loans and all those sorts of things Hmm. and that that was going to spark a financial crisis because this is something that people get confused is like a recession and financial crisis because they're used interchangeably in 2008 they think they're the same thing but they're not right right. okay Um, a financial crisis is the financial system failing and that's what happened in 2008 there was um, and i think this is the unfortunate thing with like a lot of people have watched the big short and think that's the extent of what was happening in 2008? Yeah. Mm. Um, it's it's a, misunder- it's a misunderstanding of what Michael Lewis was doing. Michael Lewis wrote the book that The Big Short is based on as mm. a character study of Michael Burry, right? Mm. And what Michael Burry did and like who he was, um, yeah. And that's what Michael Michael Lewis does. He wrote like uh, Moneyball was about this crazy guy who. Went and managed the baseball team and did this like radical new thing with the baseball team. Hmm, um, right. Like that's what that's how Michael Lewis writes. It wasn't. He wasn't trying to explain the financial crisis. Basically. Right. Okay. There was a lot. That's more, just the way it got interpreted. It's yeah. It's it's because it's like sort of the best explanation out there.
0: Right. Maybe the easiest to put into a book.
2: The easiest. Well, I mean, there's been a lot of books written about the financial crisis. There's others that yeah. are. Uh, like actually explain what happened um but that one was just it's very i mean margot robbie in a bath explaining economics to you i mean (laughs) like like i'm all i'm all there for that but
0: (laughs) um, but maybe won't give you the most detailed
2: precise (laughs) look it's a slice of what happened and and you've got to understand like michael lewis works at solomon brothers for Lewis Ranieri, who's like, I don't know if you remember at the beginning of the movie, there's a, the guy who walks into the room at the beginning and's like, Who wants to make some money? And it's like this oh, big yeah. like, fat guy. I think he's got yeah. suspenders on. And yeah. it's kind of the story of like Solomon Brothers invented this way of packaging mortgages and then they sold them. And yep. r- when that was happening, Michael Lewis was working at Solomon Brothers. Right. And he didn't fit in. He didn't really enjoy working on wall street he thought it was all a bit disgusting how they were making all this money not really doing anything and so he sort of got his like he's got that background to him and so when he wrote that he was showing look these guys did a really bad thing it was really terrible um they were basically crooks um Mm. but there was there was a large um structural issue within the financial system Um, Where basically nobody knew what anybody else owed anybody when it came to derivatives. Like these banks were doing these giant derivatives trades worth like hundreds of billions of dollars. And they were writing them down on like paper. And they were in some back room for some low paid secretary to go through and enter into the books.
0: Mm, And
2: everyone accepted this until those derivatives started going bad. And then everyone yeah. was like, "Oh my god! I don't know who owes what." We, the banks didn't know what they owed anyone else. They didn't know what was owed to them, and all of this was blowing up. Everyone just right. lost lost track of everything. Yeah, and so, right. and and they knew this was an issue. They knew before, and they were trying to fix it. Um, right. Uh, it like Kevin Rudd when he became prime minister in two thousand seven. He knew that this was an issue and he actually went and met with the Secretary of the Treasury. And that's part of why Australia was so uh so sort of isolated from it and why he was so ready to pounce because he knew it was coming. Right, okay. Like he sort of he sort of foresaw that there could be an issue there. But yeah, basically yep. nobody knew what anybody owed because they were all like in these back room. <laughs> um, like sort of like these pieces of paper and they had to sort of try and net them all together and that's why it all exploded um, maze of sticky
0: notes <laughs> basically yeah, yeah. Um,
2: and look it's yeah. happened it's happened before and like literally a hundred years earlier there was a, a similar crisis that happened the panic of 1907 right and this, like basically it, it's it's weird how similar the crises were where yeah. one bank failed the whole thing went went bust and then JP Morgan, the uh, f- like the the guy who started the JP Morgan bank, uh, had to be sneaked into New York City to come and save everything, and they had right. to sneak huh. him in because if he was away at some like church thing, he was very religious, right. And if people saw that he was coming back to New York, they would know that the panic, like there was something seriously Something's wrong, <laughs> and that mm. everything would have gone bad. And it was after 1907 when that happened that they set up the, the Federal Reserve. Right, wow. okay.
0: There you go. Wow, what a history lesson. What a history lesson. Yeah. <laughs> so, should, should we keep talking? Sh- do we need to cover more on central banks?
2: I think we've kind of gone through it. I think the only thing that we haven't really touched is what's called unconventional monetary policy, mm. which is uh, becoming front and center now. Um, so, things like negative interest rates. Yeah. Um, like negative interest rates and QE, are uh, sort yeah. of the things that get pushed right up to the top of the headlines. But mm. there's two other sort of tools that can be used. There's forward guidance, yeah. um, which is basically like it's becoming very commonly used now. If you go to a statement made by a central bank and speeches made by central bankers, they will very sort of clinically lay out this is what we um, are forecasting. This is when we're going to change policies. Uh, so, when, for example, they cut rates all the way down uh, during the crisis, they said things are going to st- rates are going to stay low for a long time until we see a recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that gives the market and the economy some confidence of where policy is going to go. Yeah, and that hasn't always been the case. Like back in the like 1970s 1980s the central bank wouldn't even like they wouldn't release a statement or anything when they changed their policy they would just do what they were doing and it was kind of like they they were just doing their thing and then someone figured out that hang on if we tell the market what we're going to do we might not have to do as much (laughs) um and so that's yeah, forward guidance is becoming very, very commonly used. And um, Philip Lowe, the governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia, is a very big fan of central guidance. Um, okay. Like he's written, um, he he's part of like sort of the economic research team. Um, I'm not quite sure what the official name is at the Bank for International Settlements, which is mm. basically the central bank for central banks. Um, It's in Switzerland. And he's on their, like, sort of one of their research teams. And he writes a lot about forward guidance. Um, And then the last one is term funding facilities, which is basically a a different way of injecting money into the banking system specifically in order to stimulate lending. And so here in Australia, we've seen. A term funding facility be set up during COVID, where they said if you, uh, they made I think a ninety billion dollars or one hundred and twenty billion dollars available to the banks, specifically mm. for lending to a small business. So right. if they basically said if you they they would use I think on on a month like blocks. If they increased their lending to small and medium businesses by like every dollar they increase it, they would get given $5 by the central bank. Right. Um, And so that's a different way of injecting money into the economy. And basically, it it just folk like trying to tell the, the banks you need to lend to small businesses.
0: Yeah. Just a slightly a slightly different structure, slightly different uh, incentive way of doing it, I suppose.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, and so okay. we saw we saw those things sort of start to be used in the 2008 crisis as well, um, right. and then straight away when this crisis happened, all the central banks just said term funding facility. Here you go, small business mm-hmm. lending.
0: And just to wrap up on central banks and whatnot, I've heard a lot of news articles and videos lately talking about, you know, the central bank steps in and does their thing and, you know, buys the bonds and prints the money and that causes a hell of a lot of inflation and people are, you know, economists or whatever are worried about inflation. Um, did you want to just quickly explain, uh, because inflation is one of our three big um, three big—I uh, don't know what outputs. what we would call them—outputs, t- yeah, yeah. A- economic outputs. So, how does the the how does what the central bank does influence inflation?
2: Um, look, there's you ask three different economists, they're going to give you three different answers. Right. Well, um, what's your
0: what's your take on it?
2: Basically, or generally, the, the, the easiest idea, way to explain it: the idea is that the more money you have in the economy. The more economic activity you have, Mm. the more prices are going to rise because it it comes back to this idea, Like it goes back to the 1930s of this guy called John Maynard Keynes. Um, You may have heard of Keynesian economics. Mm. Yeah, heard of it, don't know what it means. (laughs) Basically, he writes a couple of books in the 1930s saying that the economy has sort of a maximum productive output. Okay, Um, yeah. And like, so if everyone, if everyone's working, if there's full employment, if mm-hmm. like you've got the best technology being employed in the best ways, there's this maximum productive the output. max of the max. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's sort of this level of output. GDP mm-hmm. isn't necessarily going to be that level. GDP yeah. is more going to be determined by the demand in the economy. Yes. So if you increased demand and the demand goes above the sort of potential output is the technical term demand goes above potential outputs you're going to start driving inflation because instead of the all the firms and factories and whatnot increasing their output they're just going to start increasing prices because they can prices go up
0: yeah and so the demand is there
2: yeah and the demand is there and so What you have is if you're increasing demand by increasing lending, like increasing the amount of money in the economy, so lending increases, et cetera, et cetera, the fear Mm. is that you can sort of push this, um, the demand past the potential output, and that will cause inflation. Um, Mm. In practice, we've had... Un, like unprecedented amounts of money printing in the economy,, yeah. and mm-hmm. inflation has been very sluggish yeah, um, and the reasons for that, like <laughs> that's the current issue in economics someone's going to win a Nobel Prize for figuring it out <laughs> <laughs> um, but like there's kind of a bunch of different theories, one is. We're buying a lot of stuff from overseas very cheaply, hmm. and hmm. so inflation is staying low because of that. Hmm. Um, inflation is an imperfect measure because we're buying uh, the way you measure inflation, or the traditional way of measuring inflation, is a basket of consumer goods, like the typical yeah. basket of consumer goods, and that may not that may not capture where inflation is actually happening in the economy. Yeah, uh, There may be some like in like some industrial sector, like there's like maybe an industry, for example, inflation is going crazy and that mm. may be constraining uh, economic output there. Um, and obviously, if we're just buying everything from China, it's much cheaper. Inflation is going to be lower. Right. Like that's that's a factor as well. Um, and so it, nobody really knows what the real reason is. And yeah, somebody's going to win a Nobel Prize for figuring it out. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, right. Seems complicated. Yeah, um, <laughs> and and the problem with economics is that it's we, you you can approach it with a very scientific viewpoint, but you can't do experiments. Yeah, right? like so in physics and medicine and chemistry, you can set up an experiment, like do it, repeat it, do like mm. a thousand trials, like whatever. You can't do that in economics. So yeah, I guess you, you
0: you just learn from history what has happened, I suppose,
2: yeah, exactly yeah. Right. and like prior to the last seventy years, economics has been very different because prior to the last seventy years, most countries have been involved in some major war, pretty mm. much consistently, and so they've got a like a very differently structured economy because they've got to make tanks and ships and <laughs> whatever <laughs> um for for their um like, for their army. And mm, yep. if they don't do that correctly, go- like, their country isn't going to exist anymore. Um, and so, like, you see that in, in the Second World War, they spent an ungodly amount of money trying to ship things over in Britain, trying to ship things over from the United States. Right. Because mm. just to feed people, like, pe- like, they had to ration food in mm. the UK until the like the fifties because they just didn't have enough food for everyone. So everyone got like a little book and you were allowed to buy one uh, package of bacon a week and one uh, oh, right. like pound of butter <laughs> every week. Like so you, There you go. Like, and so yeah, and they literally considered in, in the second world war going and taking people's jewelry and wedding rings and things and melting them down and sending them to the U S to pay, for the oil and the weapons. Oh my and the gosh! Yeah. So <laughs> that—that's crazy. <laughs> so we've got this totally different paradigm in economics now compared to seventy years and be like seventy years ago and before. Mm. And so we just there's a lot of stuff we just don't know. Right, right. Well, I think we should probably
0: um, start wrapping up the podcast. Uh, we've already been going for well over an hour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think the the last thing we should probably touch on is just for I mean, we've talked about so much stuff—the inputs, the outputs, the uh, fiscal policy, um, the monetary policy. There's so much stuff that we've covered. For for the average person that just wants to kind of learn how to track the economy, how our economy is doing, how the U.S. economy is doing, wherever you might be, what are some what are some things, some takeaways? What can people actually go and look at to see how our economy is chugging along?
2: So. Obviously, looking at the big three outputs that we talked about, yep. um, you're going to find those. I mean, every time something like that's released, you're going to see it in, um, in the media. Um, yep. But those things are fairly infrequent. I think in Australia, we do a quarterly inflation series, we do monthly unemployment and quarterly GDP. Um, yep. And like even GDP, I think it takes seven weeks to produce. So well, right, um, the course is going to end, and then seven weeks later, you're going to get the GDP data. So it, that's very mm. sort of infrequent. Um, yep. Other things you can look at are things like um, construction numbers um, mm. and housing starts. So like how many houses was like how many housing approvals were issued in the last month or last week or whatever. That makes sense. Um, yep. um, that's a good indicator. Um, Visa and Mastercard. Um, Publish like spending data quite a lot yeah we were talking about that not too long ago yeah Mm -hmm. yeah so they they just publish like this is how much people spend and I think they even break it down into like what categories of things people are spending it on right Um, there's a lot of the banks do similar releases um, and they also do like Business confidence surveys, and so they'll they'll call up a bunch of businesses and ask them a set of questions, and they'll put a number of what is like business confidence at the moment. And then the last one is this thing called like manufacturing indexes, um, mm. and so these are actually quite useful to look at, um, where it's they're very complicated numbers to put together, but effectively the way it works is if it's fifty. It means that compared to the last period, manufacturing has stayed the same. Um, mm. If it's above 50, it means it's uh, expanding. Manufacturing is expanding. If right. it's below right. 50, it means manufacturing is contracting Right, compared to the last right. period. Um, and yeah, that'd be a good measure. Yeah, they, they're a very, very good measure. And so there's a few of them out there. Um, like you're sort of, if you just search manufacturing index, you'll get the big ones. Um, I think the big one is, um, It's I always mix it up. So there's the Australian Manufacturing uh, PMI, which is put together by AIG. Um, okay. And there's like American ones as well. And then like basically the way it's put together is they are looking at how much raw materials are these companies buying. And that's, oh, that's a good right. indicator of how much is being, manufactured Um, and so yeah there's like currently in july um, the australian pmi was at 53.5 so it's expanding right um, compared to and that makes sense because domestic manufacturing is going to go up because they need to make toilet paper (laughs) Um, Uh, very good point so there's yeah there's that stuff so um comsec have a very good weekly report um, where they will put all the releases that are going to come out in the next week, mm-hmm. um, and they will so so they, they do two reports. They do one like after the week's done to say whatever it, what happened, and then yep. one mm-hmm. looking forward said so all the releases that What's are going to come out of next week, um, and then what the expectation of what they're going to be and what the last reading was. Right, and so mm-hmm. and you can just get to that through you go to like the Comsec site you've got to have an account which is free to make Um, Hmm. log in and you go to the research tab and they'll have all of those things there Um, so they do that they do a weekly uh, or sorry like three times daily they do a podcast um, which just sort of reads out like what's happening more market focused and then daily they also do sort of a little bit of a write up about the major releases during the day Um, and then the other sort of major source I would say is looking at central banks um, because they're a a very good way of getting an idea of what's happening in the economy most central banks will meet every month Um, here in Australia they meet every month except January I think in the Fed meets like eight times a year or nine times a year and they will release a statement after every meeting basically saying this is what we think is happening in the economy and therefore this is what we're doing yeah Yeah. and then later on in the month they'll release the minutes from the meeting so that's much more detailed Um, and then just google stuff you don't know like if you don't understand Mm. like what this measure is or what that means just google it Hmm. yeah awesome
0: wow what a podcast that was (laughs) was jam-packed that was that was really jam packed, hard to hard to follow. Some because my brain is just mush when it comes <laughs> to economics. But uh. I, I think I think you explain things really really well. Like I've got such a better understanding of of how things like the central bank actually works and how they actually go about what they try and do. So no, that was. Um, that was awesome. Thanks for thanks for coming on. You can come on anytime. That man, that podcast was easy for me and Hamish. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Just ask a couple questions, kick the feet up, and listen and get educated. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean,
2: it's like especially central banking is one of the, like it's a very weird thing. Um, yeah. And it's very difficult to get your head around. Like I've read at this point probably tens of thousands of pages on central right. banks, mm, um, yeah. and I still have to sort of like sit down, like if I'm trying to think about a concept have to sit down and maybe like sketch it out and like right. try and understand like it's a very it's not a thing that sort of clicks with our brains very easily
0: mm. and there are so um, many very parts abstract. to it too yeah.
2: yeah yeah and so like yeah I mean I've like like I said I've read like hundreds of books um mm. and yeah it's still just a, a very weird thing and it requires a, quite a bit of mental energy to get your head around it Mm. Yeah. But I, th- I find it so
0: interesting. I mean, what we've talked about today, you know, when you just go down to the shops or, or maybe you, you want to send your friends some money and they're with a different bank to you. Now you understand kind of a bit more of the back end of how that actually happens. Yeah. So,
2: There's um, a very um, good I think- podcast. I think I recommended it to you, Brandon. Yeah. Um, the Verge cast did an episode last week um, about how money and payments have become social media. Um, and right. it's a very interesting sort of case study of um, Visa and how yeah. Visa was started, and how the guy who started Visa actually sort of had the idea for Bitcoin long before Bitcoin was invented. <laughs> All um, right, there you go. But didn't. Oh, what a missed opportunity. <laughs> well, he just didn't have the technology to. Um, yeah. And he's still like a, a titan in Silicon Valley. Like every time a new payments company comes up, like if they can get a meeting with him like right. it's mm. it's a good
0: sign it's a, it's a bit yeah big up
2: yeah yeah oh very interesting well thanks very much
0: for coming on jason we really appreciate it and no worries uh, yeah thanks for taking the time out of your day and um and and doing all the prep work because yeah we're we're um we're small brains
2: <laughs> you're <laughs> no the big i know brain. It all. i listen to the podcast every week it's really good oh, oh yeah thanks thanks for thanks,
0: Thanks for tuning in yeah, and thanks for joining us. We're going to have to do a part two because uh, there's so still so many st- topics we haven't even touched on um, mm. that we were hoping to get to today. But, um, yeah. yeah, thanks, Hamish, for for coming along as well, enjoying the
2: ride. Yeah, absolutely. It's been great.
0: <laughs> yeah, it has been. We've just been able to chill out
2: <laughs> for this episode. All right, well, Brandon, uh, I've we just got could... one question for you. Oh, gosh, should, here we go, yeah. Should I buy Tesla stock? Oh, look, um, <laughs>
0: you've got to. I mean... <laughs> my My sole reasoning for it is that it's gone up by what one hundred percent in the last two weeks. So surely in the next two weeks it's going to go up another hundred percent. Yeah, I think that's how yeah. it works. That's I mean that's yeah that's that is how it works. I'm pretty sure that's I'm pretty sure there's a rule somewhere that says if it goes up one hundred percent, it's going to keep going up. That's the
1: official yeah. the young investors podcast position as well. Bike, yeah
0: like. that is that is yeah <laughs> no it's not geez do not sue us for Christ's sake well my last question to you Jason is who's going to win the Formula 1 this weekend
2: oh um that's not even a question it's definitely going to be George that's- Russell George Ooh. Russell
0: go George up the George Russell yeah uh, it's definitely Valtteri definitely. Bottas or Lewis Hamilton flip a coin it's one of those two guys well we might get <laughs>
2: some rain so oh
0: there you go maybe we'll see Super Max come out yeah (laughs) anyway off topic thanks guys for listening we super appreciate it Um, thanks Jason for coming on and and joining us this week no worries Um, and we'll catch you guys in the next episode